the meeting tonight. I'm really delighted. Um, when I was planning this lecture program, uh, you kind of look around to see what you might ask somebody to come and talk about from outside the sphere of medicine. And I was reading a Sunday Times magazine, and um, the communicators of tomorrow were featured. And one of them is Professor Alan uh, Winfield. And he was identified as being a leading thinker in the way robot robots behave together. And as I've never seen a robot really behave on its own, I was fascinated to know how they behave together. And Professor Alan Winfield is uh, from the Faculty of Environment and Technology at the University of West England. And uh, he's Professor of Electronic Engineering mm -hmm. and the EPSRC Media Communicator for the year his year started. So this is his specialty, communicating about robots. And I think we're going to have a fascinating lecture. Uh, I thought was one of the things that stimulated me to suggest that we might invite the young people to come and join us today is that I was watching iRobot on the television around the time we selected this lecture. And I thought it really cr creates this atmosphere of what's the future going to be like. And so the young people are here to perhaps hear what the future for them is going to be like because it may not happen in some of our lifetimes, but it's going to happen in one of theirs. And so I'm really pleased that so many young people have chosen to come tonight. They may all think it's a bit of a weird event, sitting beside their parents, uh, wondering what on earth they're talking about. Um, but there is food, there was music, and now we're going to find out about robots. So thank you for coming. Alan. <coughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, wow, that was a wonderful introduction. Thank you very much indeed, David. Um, and I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Um, yes, to, to talk about robots. In fact, before I forget, let me just dim the lights, um, which I do from here. Uh, here we go. Yes, medium. So that's, I think that should be okay. Um, the point you made about uh, young people is, is absolutely right. Um, the, the fact is that the technologies that I'm talking about this evening um, really are going to have a major impact on our children and our grandchildren. And um, something, although I'm a technologist primarily, uh, over the past two or three years, particularly since uh, engaging uh, with the public, um, with public audiences about robotics, um, I've really come to appreciate the, um, the ethical uh, issues around robotics. So um, while I'm talking, I'd particularly like you, and, and especially the young people here, to think about the kinds of robots that you would like in your lifetimes. Um, that's a serious question because I believe that we're reaching the point in society where we need to make decisions about the kind of technology that we want and equally importantly, the kind of technology that we do not want. Um, the, the, the kind of robotics that I'll be talking about, um, although it may kind of look to be fun, uh, it is fun, but uh, it does raise uh, some uh, quite deep societal questions. You know, what, what kind of robots do we want in our society? Um, and and it's, it's kind of, of academic interest, David, to you, know, to you and I. Um, but 
to our children, my children, and, 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 and our grandchildren, um, it's not just of academic interest. Uh, so I think that this is a subject that I'd like you to engage with, uh, not just at a technical level, but an ethical uh, level. So um, the, the kind of, uh, uh, the real title of, of this uh, lecture is, Can I Have a Robot for Christmas? Um, the answer, of course, is yes, you can. Uh, but um, uh, the robot that you can have for Christmas right now isn't particularly uh, impressive. Uh, there are some quite interesting robots around, uh, but the really interesting robots are in research labs. And what I'm going to, to uh, show you this evening are the robots of, of my lab, the robots of the Bristol Robotics Laboratory. Um, the lab is, uh, in, in fact, it's a joint lab of uh, the University of the West of England and the University of Bristol. And we believe we're the largest research lab uh, in uh, the UK. We have around 50 uh, staff and students. Um, and we cover this um, kind of range of, of uh, interests. Um, the, these areas that we call broadly biological robotics, um, and I think some of the work we're doing might be particularly relevant uh, in, a, in a, a medical school. Uh, humanoid and emotional robotics. And then uh, the third area, which is my own personal spe speciality, which is uh, swarm robotics. And in a way, uh, swarm robotics kind of brings these things together. Um, the movie iRobot uh, is, in fact, a swarm in a sense, of humanoid robots. Uh, so uh, if you like, what I'll be talking about in the first two-thirds of this lecture are the components, the, the parts, if you like, of, of future robotics. Swarm robotics is really where it might come together, if we want it to come together. That's an important point. So throughout the lecture, I'll be pausing to ask the question, where might this lead? What kind of applications um, do uh, these technologies uh, lend themselves to? Um, and although they may well lend themselves to some applications, we might choose not to use them. Um, OK. I'm going to start by asking, what is an intelligent robot? Um, well. Firstly, it's, I think it's quite a useful thing to, to, to say what an intelligent robot is not. Um, these are all robots that, that have been around for a while. Um, this, this robot here, uh, the technical term for that is a multi-axis manipulator, a robot arm. And the world is full of these kinds of robots. They've been around for something like 30-odd years. Basically, uh, your car your mum and dad's car, uh, will, will have been made using these robots. Um, uh, the washing machine. In fact, your mobile phone um, will have been made using these kinds of robots. Uh, they're essentially used for manufacturing. But they're not intelligent. They're robots that are simply pre-programmed to go through a fixed sequence of, uh, of actions, paint spraying or welding. Um, or indeed um, gene sequencing. So these kinds of robots are used in um, uh, 
biomedical research, and we wouldn't have the, the kind of uh, uh, genome sequences uh, that we now have without this kind of robotics technology to automate that process. It's not an intelligent robot because it basically does not decide what to do next on its own. This robot is also um, a, a robot that's been around for a while. This is uh, called a remotely operated vehicle. It's typically used for undersea exploration. Again, it's not intelligent. Uh, it's typically on the end of a long cable uh, and uh, operated by uh, people sitting in the ship, uh, steering it and, and seeing through its cameras. The, the robot that looks most like a robot um, is this one here. In fact, uh, in 2006, uh, you may well have got one for Christmas because this was, in fact, the uh, most popular uh, toy in Christmas 2006. It's called Robo Sapiens. Um, I, I, I guess, I, I bet there are a few uh, children here who've, who've got one or had one, perhaps. But uh, um, again, this is not an intelligent robot. Um, the reason is that it's remotely controlled. It's pretty interesting. It does some pretty interesting things, um, but it's not intelligent. What makes a robot intelligent? Well, um, here's, it, this is a little bit sort of scientific in a sense, but, but why not? Um, it's a, it's a self-contained device that can sense its environment and then act in or on that environment. So the important thing about intelligence is sensing the world and then using that data to decide how to, to, to behave, how to react. And um, this picture here kind of shows um, the, this is what engineers call a control loop. So a robot, this is a little picture of a robot, is sensing data from the world and then acting on the world. Now the interesting thing is that, um, imagine that you're a robot, okay? You've got cameras and you, you open your cameras and close them again. And you've now got a picture in your robot brain of the world and you try and figure out what to do next. So you then decide that you're gonna move perhaps forward half a meter or something. And then you open your eyes and close them again. And the thing that, that, that's happened is that the world, your view of the world has changed because you've moved. Um, now that 30 or 40 years ago, that was a real problem for roboticists because it meant that they had to do all of this heavy computation to figure out where everything was in the world every time the robot moved. Now, there was a bit of a revolution uh, in the mid-1980s, in fact, uh, led by a guy called uh, Rodney Brooks at MIT in the US. And uh, Rod Brooks had um, the, the realization, which, like all good ideas, is, is very simple once, you, once you've thought of it. He realized that most animals in the world do not do computation, do, do not figure out somehow how the world is structured between each move of their legs or wings or 
fins or whatever it is that, that, that the animal has. Insects, in fact, uh, simply don't have enough um, neurological machinery, don't have enough brain to be able to, to, to uh, uh, figure out where this table is or where the light is or how far away that, that chair is. Um, and they simply react uh, to the world as they find it. Uh, Brooks wrote a very famous paper called uh, Intelligence Without Representation, uh, where he argued that most animals in the world uh, simply do not have to build an internal model of the world in order to be a behave intelligently. And in fact, let, let me play it again. We, um, I'll just go backwards uh, and then forwards again. This little movie um, here um, on the bottom right is just to prove the point. This is a robot that has no brain at all. It's a little robot that has two wings and, and that each wing is a solar cell. And the left-hand wing is connected to the right-hand motor and vice versa. So it has literally no electronics, no brain at all. Yet that little robot is able to navigate through this maze um, with no brain. It's able to behave intelligently, in other words, find its way through this maze, uh, even though it hasn't got any um, uh, computational machinery. So that's a kind of proof by building a working model that you don't need to be smart. You don't, I'm sorry, you, you don't need to be um, brainy to be intelligent. <laughs> okay. Um, that's a little introduction to uh, intelligent robotics. I'm now going to go into the robots of, of our lab, and I'm going to start with um, biological robotics. Now, what do I mean by biological robotics? I mean robots that are either inspired by um, nature, by biology, or modeled directly on animals. And the first robot that I'm going to show you is our uh, Scratchbot. I'll just pause the movie for a second. So this guy here is the rat. Uh, actually a wonderful animal. Um, now the interesting thing about the rat is that the rat sees the world with his whiskers. Um, in fact, you, you may not know this, but, but rats, uh, like all rodents, actually whisk their whiskers. So they move all of their whiskers backwards and forwards and kind of feel the world with their whiskers. And in the same way that, that you and I use vision to see the world in three dimensions, the rat uses whiskers to see the world in three dimensions, with, not with color, but certainly with texture. So the rat can tell whether a surface is rough or smooth. Uh, just with its whiskers. Now, um, one of the problems with uh, robots for real-world applications is that uh, for the kind of applications that we'd like to envisage in the future, um, vision is not a very good sense. So uh, imagine uh, that you'd like robots to, to search a, a collapsed building for survivors. It's not hard to imagine, is it? So it might be a war zone or it might, might be an earthquake zone. Now, a collapsed building has 
spaces, and you'd like to be able to, to put robots into those spaces to search. Uh, but the spaces are typically full of dust and smoke. And that's why cameras, vision, uh, are not good for uh, those kind of confined spaces. Whiskers, in fact, would be a much, much better sense for a robot, for robots, a swarm of robots, in fact, to have to search a collapsed building. So um, here we've been building a robot with um, artificial whiskers called, in fact, Scratchbot. Uh, actually, there's, there's another thing, another part of this story which I want to share with you. Um, this robot not only has artificial whiskers, it also has a model in electronics of a small part of the rat's brain. In fact, the, the rat, <coughs> a part of the rat's brain, the, the barrel cortex, is the part that processes the data from the whiskers. And uh, amazingly, uh, the, the rat neuroscientists in University of Sheffield, in fact, uh, with, with whom we've been working on this project, they've figured out the wiring of that little tiny part of the rat's brain. It's about 40,000 neurons. And what we've done in the Whiskerbot, in fact, it was called the Whiskerbot, it's now called Scratchbot. Earlier generation was, was the Whiskerbot. What we've done in this, um, in this robot, uh, right about here, there's, a, there's a, uh, a stack of electronics that is a model of the barrel cortex. In fact, it's such a good model that we can put kind of virtual probes, imaginary probes, into, the, into this um, barrel cortex and see the same signals, spike train, they're called spike trains, that the rat neuroscientists see if they put a real probe into the same place in the real rat's brain, which of course is horrible, so we'd rather they didn't do that. So what we have with the Scratchbot is not only uh, a robot with whiskers that might be very useful uh, for future uh, real-world applications like search and rescue, but we also have a working model of uh, a part of the sensory, uh, neural and sensory apparatus of the rat. So we can actually do biology with this robot. It's a, it's a kind of working model. Um, and I'm very excited by the idea that robotics uh, is now allowing us to actually do science in a way that we couldn't do science before by building working models. The next robot I'm going to show you is, is uh, similarly um, inspired by, uh, by uh, animals, or actually in one case that I'll come to by a plant. Um, <clears throat> now, most roboticists worry about um, autonomy. Many, many roboticists are concerned about autonomy. And what they normally mean by autonomy is a robot that can um, figure out what to do next on its own. In other words, intelligent, intelligence autonomy or kind of computational autonomy. But um, the problem is that, that robots run on electricity. That means they need batteries. If the battery runs out, it doesn't matter how smart you are, you're dead. So 10 years ago, we started a, a project to look at energy autonomy, 
how could a robot get energy from its environment? Now, it would be easy to give a robot solar cells, but we wanted to make it harder. How could we make a robot predator? Could we make a robot that could get its own dinner? And our first uh, project, oh, I'm, you know, I've, I've skipped ahead of myself. I didn't actually show you the movie. I do apologize. I'll just pause for a second uh, while you actually see Scratchbot. Um, so Scratchbot has uh, the uh, so-called macrovibrissi, which are the big whiskers uh, on the sides of its uh, face. Um, and then it uses, though, to or use, uses the big whiskers to orient uh, the microvibrissi, which are on the front of the snout, uh, to uh, give it fine uh, sensing. So that's Scratchbot. I do apologize that I ran ahead of myself. It's getting excited, you see. Um, yeah, so our first attempt at building a robot predator was the Slugbot. Could we get a, make a robot that could catch uh, and, and eat slugs and get energy from slugs? Now, if you watch carefully, um, you can see this little gripper has got a red light. And, oh, it's found a slug. There's the, the slug. Actually, no real slugs were harmed in the making of this movie. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a plastic slug. Um, but in fact, we, the reason we chose slugs, well, there are two reasons. Um, firstly, because they move very slowly, so they're easy to catch. Actually, they're not that easy, easy to catch. Um, but the second reason is that uh, nobody loves slugs. Um, in fact, we discovered, here's a little factoid for you, we discovered that if you shine red light on a slug, it reflects red light, which is how we're actually detecting uh, the slug here. Um, slugs are, are quite hard to, to, to detect otherwise because they're the, t the same temperature as the soil. So you can't use any kind of thermal uh, device to actually sense a slug. So, um, and, and you can see here that, that we're trying to, to uh, build a robot that, that gets energy from slugs. So we've, we've got a, a, a body that stays still and a very long slender neck so that the robot can uh, scan the area of ground around its body. And of course, that costs less energy than if the robot had to physically move its body to search the ground. Okay, so we've kind of solved half of the problem here. So we can catch slugs. Now, how are we going to convert them into energy? Hmm, that's a problem. The a uh, sort of conventional approach uh, is to ferment the, the slugs, the biomass, uh, which is horrible and stinky, um, and uh, generate biogas, which is basically methane, and then burn the methane in a fuel cell to generate electricity. That's actually a very complicated uh, and very inefficient process. So um, we basically had a change of tack. And after the Slugbot project, we started to look at a technology that we call the microbial fuel cell. And this is a, a kind of early model uh, of the microbial fuel cell. It's an amazing device. It's a battery that runs on food. 
the battery that, that you, you've all got inside your mobile phone, this runs on chemical energy. But in a microbial fuel cell, you put food in and you get electricity out. Um, it's obviously a very different uh, set of processes, biochemical processes, uh, but the, the principles of the battery are similar. You have an anode and a cathode uh, compartment. You have a membrane between them. Um, and in fact, the, the cathode compartment actually contains um, a, a kind of soup of enzymes that will break down and digest the food. Actually, the soup of enzymes we use um, uh, is from sewage sludge. That sounds horrible again, doesn't it? But if you think about it, it's the right thing to use because sewage sludge is designed to break down pretty much any biomass that you, you throw at it. So anything that is biological will get digested. Um, okay, so uh, we, we've been developing this thing called a microbial fuel cell. Now, what does it live on? Well, um, we experimented with all kinds of food. So, you know, we, we tried apple cores and, and meat and, and vegetables and all sorts of things. But, uh, in fact, the, the, the thing that we discovered gives us the best energy conversion is chitin. So the exoskeletal material of insects. It's the protein. It's a very similar protein to the, to the stuff in your fingernails. So, in fact, uh, this robot, which you can see in this movie, you may have, may have noticed that it's, it's moving rather slowly. Um, but this is, this is a famous movie because this is the, the world's first robot um, uh, to run on exclusively on unrefined uh, bio, bi biological material. In fact, it's running on eight dead flies. The flies were just flies that we found on a windowsill, you know, as you do. Um, and there are eight little fuel cells, microbial fuel cells, around the, the ring of the robot. And each fuel cell has one dead fly in it. And that was enough to run this robot for about two weeks continuously. Amazing. That's no batteries at all. Uh, the only source of energy is from digesting those flies. Okay, this, we thought we were onto something here, <coughs> but there's a problem with this technology, which is that the, the fuel cell, uh, this is a, a kind of big model of the fuel cell, and the little ones that we have around the outside of this uh, robot that we called EcoBot 2. The problem with this fuel cell is that it's a closed cell. And the problem is that um, the digestion of the dead fly, dead flies, um, creates waste products. But because the waste products stay inside the fuel cell and, and are toxic, then they eventually kill the enzymes that actually digest the food. So uh, what, what we've been working on in the last year or so is how to get rid of, how to, to remove the waste products of digestion. And the robot um, that we're now working on is called EcoBot 3. Um, and this is EcoBot 3. In fact, it's, it's not yet working. 
So these are photographs that, that, that we took just literally a couple of weeks ago in the lab. Now, um, we've got 48 of these little microbial fuel cells, the brick-colored things around this robot here. Um, what's important about these fuel cells is they now have uh, uh, pipes in and pipes out as well. In fact, um, not only that, we're not going to feed this robot with dead flies. It's going to catch them itself. Um, and what we have, uh, and here's another model, right at the top we have this uh, device which is for, for attracting live flies. Uh, so we use a pheromone. Uh, flies will be attracted by the pheromone and they'll crawl inside and fall into a, a kind of a solution uh, 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 with, with some enzymes that start to break down the, the, the live flies. And then the, the kind of nutrient-rich um, soup, if you like, will be fed through tubes to these uh, microbial fuel cells all around the outside. So this is a kind of a robot pitcher plant. Uh, it's a, a robot that can catch flies uh, and digest them uh, for energy. Um, it's not yet uh, working with, with, well, it is working, but, but we're having to uh, really work hard on the electronics because even though we've got 48 microbial fuel cells, each fuel cell only generates microwatts of power. So we've, we're having to design the electronics uh, really with incredibly low power consumption. And we have to scavenge every uh, sort of microwatt of, of energy, microjoule of energy, uh, and, and uh, conserve it uh, so that we can uh, basically get the energy budget. Uh, and clearly this, this robot um, has an internal, well, in fact, it has a, a, an alimentary canal. Uh, it, it, it has to do uh, something equivalent, I guess, to sort of peristalsis. And we need to have pumps. In fact, there's a picture of one there. Um, and the problem is that these things need energy. So just to live without actually physically moving, this robot needs to have enough of an energy budget uh, so that it, doesn't, it just doesn't stop, effectively, the process of, uh, processes of uh, digestion. Um, but I think we'll get there. And uh, uh, so look out for this um, when we do a press release. Um, it's also the first robot that I've ever seen that it's got it, that's got its own litter tray. Okay. Um, there are a couple of examples of, of um, biological uh, robots. Now, what kind of applications might we have for these? Well, I've mentioned already search and rescue. I've mentioned uh, neuroscience research. Energy, energy autonomy, I think, is very interesting. Um, I'd love to have a robot in my garden that did the weeding. In fact, don't think of it as a robot. Think of it as a kind of artificial animal that, in a sense, artificially, lives in your garden. So you're really not aware that it's there. It, it's smart enough to know which plants are the weeds and which are not weeds. Um, so it digs up the weeds, eats them, um, uh, and also 
extra protein, of course, from slugs. And, and, and again, it's smart enough to know which are the pests and which are not pests. And of course, ideally, it excretes fertilizer. Uh, I think that would be really interesting. It kind of Think of it as a kind of artificial hedgehog. Now, uh, we've had tremendous interest in the lab from the organic farming community. Because what we have here is the potential for pesticide-free pest control. So imagine not just one of these robots, but a swarm of them uh, in a field, um, perhaps looking after um, uh, a crop of, of strawberries or tomatoes or um, whatever. It could actually do uh, not only um, uh, husbanding, if you like, the, the crop, looking after the crop, but could actually harvest it a, a, as well. So I think there's a, a tremendous uh, potential for this kind of technology, maybe. Um, uh, I'd be interested to know whether you think it's, it's a good use of technology or not. Uh, and certainly environmental monitoring. Um, in fact, we're now looking at, at the possibility um, of, we, we've, I, I don't have any pictures of this because it, it, it's just something we're, we're beginning to do in the lab. We're looking to see whether we can combine um, the processes of waste recycling with energy generation. And we're starting to look at using enzymes in the microbial fuel cells that are photosynthetic uh, so that we can get um, kind of two for the price of one. We get, the, we get the energy from digestion, but we get extra energy from photosynthesis by having um, uh, transparent uh, panels in the uh, in the fuel cells. So I think there's a really interesting technology here. Now, I hope what I've done is, I've, I've, I hope I've surprised you a bit, uh, that, that robotics now isn't just mechanical and electrical engineering. Uh, in our lab, we have, we have wet labs. We have fume cupboards. We, we, you know, we, have, we do biochemistry. Uh, you know, we, 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 we well, we, we don't actually do neuroscience in our lab, but we work with neuroscientists. So robotics is very much more than um, uh, the, con the traditional concep conception of electrical and mechanical engineering. Okay, I'm going to move now to um, the humanoid robotics research that we do. Now, there's a lot of words on this slide. Um, imagine that that you're working on a car engine in the future. And you've got a robot workmate, a humanoid robot workmate. So you, you may just turn, but you may not turn at all to, toward the robot. And, and you put your hand out and you say, could I, have, could I have the number three spanner, please? And that robot workmate has to know what you mean, both by your words, kind of the number three spanner, but also by your gesture. Because your gesture means, can I have the number three spanner and can you please put it into my hand? Not breaking my hand in the process. And don't let go until you can t see that I've actually gripped the, the spanner. And then when you've finished working on the engine, you want to be able to just put your, your hand out again. And without saying anything at all, you want the robot to know that you mean, I finished. 
can you take the spanner off me, please? Now, those are really hard problems. And they illustrate the fact that in human communication, yes, of course, we use speech. Um, it's vital. But actually, we use gestural communication just as much as we use speech. If I stood here without actually moving my body at all, um, you'd think it very odd. Uh, and in fact, um, it would reduce the amount of communication that's going on. So in the future, humanoid robots need to be able to understand human gestural communication and intention just as much as they understand spoken speech. We can more or less do uh, speech recognition already in robots, but what we absolutely haven't yet solved is the problem of gestural or facial expression, communication by facial expressions, or indeed by eye gaze. So for you and I, if you're having a conversation with someone, um, you will automatically look where they're looking. And that's a, a, another subtle way of, of communicating. So this particular project, which is called uh, Cooperative um, Human-Robot Interaction, is looking at all of these problems. So how can humans and robots share a workspace and communicate intentions um, and uh, objectives um, properly and safely? Of course, safety is an enormous um, aspect of, of this work. Let me show you some of the robots that we're using. It's a European Union project, so there are several robots. And uh, there are some very strange-looking robots up here. Um, I don't know why this one is sitting in a kind of wheelchair. Um, I think they haven't figured out how to get him to walk yet. Uh, this robot is, is a kind of wheelchair uh, with an arm uh, sticking out of the, the seat, uh, which is very weird. Um, iCub, in fact, interestingly, iCub is a, um, an open source project. So you could make an iCub yourself. You can get all of the plans from the internet um, and build iCub. So iCub is, is a kind of uh, uh, the size of a three or four year old child. The robot that we're using ourselves in Bristol uh, is this one called Bert. In fact, Bert's been in the Science Museum recently. Um, and uh, Bert was designed and built by a, a company in Bristol called Elumotion who also um, make uh, prosthetic devices for uh, people who need um, uh, artificial hands or artificial limbs. And you can see that there's a, a, a very important crossover between robotics and, and prosthetics. In fact, um, I particularly wanted to show you the hands. So Bert has these amazing hands. These are about the size of an adult male. Uh, they have exactly the same movements. We, we call it degrees of freedom. And even more impressively, unlike your hand, your hand has most of its motors for your hand are in your forearm. And you have a very complicated uh, joint, the wrist, incredibly complicated, uh, because it has to have all of the tendons uh, running through it, no matter how it's bent, uh, to control uh, the fingers. In fact, what Elumotion have done is that they've built all of the motors inside the hand, which completely avoids the need for tendons and a very complicated wrist. 
So it means that you can literally disconnect, physically disconnect the hand from the rest of Bert, and it still works, which is kind of scary. Um, uh, what's the hand called in the Adams family? It's like that anyway. So it kind of crawls across the, you know, the, the floor. <laughs> but um, I want to show you that um, <clears throat> uh, that Bert, in fact, you can see has a a cartoon face, and I just want to talk a little bit about about robot faces because clearly humanoid robots, uh, the face of a humanoid robot is important, just as important as its body, because if humans and robots are going to work together, uh, then we humans will look at a robot's face. That's, that's natural. We'll look at its face. And we will expect it to look at us with something like a face. And there's a controversy in robotics about whether robots should have um, uh, cartoon faces, very simple faces, or uh, high-fidelity kind of um, models of real human heads. And, um, I mean, my view is that we'll probably end up with both. But uh, there is no real uh, consensus yet. So we're looking at, at both kinds. And, and Bert here has uh, this, um, this uh, simple kind of cartoon face. It's literally just drawn on a screen. And in fact, in the next slide, you can see uh, we're working on aspects of, um, of shared attention through gaze. So uh, this is the cartoon face of, of Bert, and you can see that various different expressions, kind of angry and, and, and a bit quizzical there. Um, um, and what we're doing here, this is interesting, um, you see this little, little uh, board here with, with pieces of paper. Well, this robot that Bert's head, and of course we've dis disconnected the head from the body because another project is working on the rest of the body. That's one of the great things about robots is you can, you can work on a different bit of the robot uh, in parallel. So Alex, um, who, who's just disappeared off the screen there, um, I'll just go back, uh, backwards and then forwards again. Um, so in the bottom uh, movie, you can see a, a bit of a weird... Uh, picture of, of Alex, and you can see the little green lines. You can just see the little green lines, and this is how the robot can tell which direction Alex's eyes are pointing. That, that, that we can quite literally sense the gaze. And so what's happening here is that, is that Alex is, is looking at Bert, and Alex is looking at these little, one of these little um, post-it notes, and Bert is able to tell which one Alex is looking at from looking at Alex's eyes. So then um, you have a shared communication. So if there's some object that you want the robot to pick up, then you can look at it and, and communicate that intention with the robot. Um, you can, as you can imagine, these, these are all quite difficult problems. So this is a long project. And I'm not pretending that any of this is going to um, uh, you know, come to fruition in two or three years. This is something that uh, all of these parts will come together perhaps in 10 or 15 years rather than two or three. I mentioned um, that uh, robots might need for some applications to have very human-looking faces. And the next robots I want to show you are um, 
two humanoid or android robot heads that we have in the lab uh, called uh, Jules on the left and Eva on the right. <coughs> um, they, they look a bit scary, don't they? Um, well, Eva especially because uh, she hasn't got her hair on. Um, uh, in fact, these robots were made by a very famous uh, uh, American uh, robot head builder called David Hansen, um, who not surprisingly builds uh, robot heads for Hollywood movies. So what's special about these robots is that, the, is that the, the head of the robot is full of motors, and the motors are connected by wires to the back of the skin on the face. So the motors can push and pull the skin just the same way as the muscles in your face. And in fact, um, with about 30 motors, we can simulate around 50 different muscle groups in the face. Um, and we can pretty much do most of the facial expressions. The, the only thing we can't do is this, is, is where you push your lips out, because that's really very difficult to do with, with this kind of robot technology. But the thing I want to uh, just mention briefly is what roboticists call the valley of the uncanny. Now, this, this was a, a discovery uh, of a, a Japanese uh, researcher called Mori. Actually, he was really, uh, I think, thinking of, of, of Freud here, um, who, who first, I think, came up with the idea of, of the, I think Freud called it the um, unheimlich, the, the uh, uh, the, the, the fear of, of the thing that, that is nearly familiar but not quite. So this is a graph that Mori uh, kind of came up with that shows that if you have robots that have increasing human likeness, so this is 0%, which means a robot nothing like a human, and this is 100%, which means a robot that's completely like a human, absolutely perfect in every respect. You simply couldn't tell the difference. And here is the reaction of a human to that robot. So what this shows is that as you go get more human-like, you get a more favorable reaction at this curve. But then suddenly, as soon as you get very human-like, but not quite, then you, you, your, your reaction becomes unfavorable. In fact, you, the, the robot becomes frightening. It becomes scary. It becomes freaky. It's like a zombie. It's like something from, from a horror movie. Um, and this has become known, this, this part of the graph, as the uncanny valley. And, and it seems to be borne out in practice that if you make a robot that is like a human but not quite right, then it becomes positively frightening. And I've certainly uh, witnessed this myself uh, when we have visitors to the lab. Um, I've seen, uh, it's particularly strong, this reaction in young children, so three, four, five-year-olds. And I've seen young children who love all of the robots in the lab except these. And they're frightened by these. Um, you know, even though um, some of the other robots look, you know, kind of bizarre. Uh, but these look kind of human-like. But anyway, I'd like you to uh, judge for yourself uh, whether uh, Eva is uncanny. Um, so kind of a little bit sad and, and uh, blinking. Her, her eyes are cameras, actually cameras, grinning. Bit of a toothy grin, isn't it? Um, quizzical there. Oh, very, very sad. 
and a puzzle, perhaps. Um, is that is that scary? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think Eva is in the uncanny valley. Um, doesn't help, does it, the fact that you know the skin flapping about here. <laughs> um, but this is an important problem in future robotics. You know, robots, the point is that robots generate an emotional response from humans. Um, now, these robots, because their eyes are cameras, these robots can look you in the eye, and when you smile, the robot smiles back. Now, how does that make you feel? Certainly, the robot has kind of artificial emotions. The robot isn't, doesn't have real emotions. It just behaves as if it has emotions. But I want to ask you the question, does it matter, actually, whether the robot's emotions are artificial or real? Because, as far as I'm concerned, your reaction will be the same. And I think it's your reaction that's important. I absolutely agree with you, and I, th I think um, one of the debates that, that society will need to have, perhaps in the next 20 years or so, is should robots be slaves or companions? So in other words, should you treat your robot um, the same way you treat your washing machine, or should you treat the, your robot the same way you treat your dog, which is very different? In fact, animals have rights in our society. Should robots have similar rights? Maybe. Now, this is a, it's a hot debate, and you're absolutely right to raise that. Um, in fact, in the next slide, I'm going to show you um, <coughs> a robot. It's actually not really a robot. It's, it's a kind of puppet, a very simple puppet with some robot features uh, that was built by one of my students, Dave McGoran. Um, Dave, in fact, is uh, before he came to do robotics, uh, was a puppeteer, particularly interested in the um, uh, Bunraku uh, school of Japanese robotics. Uh, and, um, and I'll let David speak for himself on this uh, movie clip. This is called Heart Robot. The heart robot is, in some ways, a very obvious way of communicating this world of emotional social robotics. But the future may not necessarily be little humanoid robots walking around that are expressing emotions and interacting with us in an emotional, socially clever way. It may be other objects around us. You know, it may be our, our laptop that um, understands that we're getting really frustrated at it and, and goes, oh, okay, I'll, I, I won't just keep repeating this error message to you. You know, it could be our mobile phone that, that knows that we're really upset and at a funeral and, and won't interrupt us with a call. Um, emotional and social intelligence could appear in many different ways in society, and this as well raises interesting questions. Does, does it make our world a much more emotionally sophisticated place? 
when we're actually able to relate to our artifacts the way we relate to one another? Or does it make us value emotional and social relationships less because they're just these artifacts that do it as well and we can always switch them off? These questions are completely unanswered. That's one of our, um, he's just graduated in fact, one of my uh, robotics students. But I think raising very interesting questions about the, the emotional response of humans to robots, um, which will certainly inform the kind of debate that, uh, that I think we were just mentioning. Sure, yes, yes. In fact, I, um, <coughs> a, a, robotics, a roboticist in the UK, um, uh, who I know very well, uh, she has work um, in uh, robots for, um, well, this is early research, but she believes um, that these robots uh, could be very beneficial in, in helping children with autism. Uh, so yes, you know, there is certainly um, uh, work in the direction of, of, of robot-assisted, you know, therapeutic benefits from, from robotics. I, I mean, Kirsten Doughtenhan wouldn't make any grand claims yet. It's early days. But certainly autistic children appear to respond better to robots than to other children uh, or humans. And, and you can kind of see why. Um, of course, the point is that robots uh, have... Uh, a, a relatively limited repertoire of behaviors. Um, so they don't display the, the complexity and richness and, and predictability of, of, of people. Um, let me um, just summarize this segment. Um, we've talked about humanoid robots for kind of human-assisted tasks, and clearly there are an enormous range of applications. Um, healthcare... Uh, I was in Japan just a couple of weeks ago, and, and um, because of the uh, aging population in Japan, there's an enormous push towards uh, robots for, um, uh, for helping uh, uh, the elderly uh, as companions, uh, as uh, uh, robots that can, in a sense, uh, you know, keep an eye on um, uh, elderly people, um, and actually provide companionship, not just um, be uh, kind of smart monitors or connected uh, monitors. Uh, education and, and leisure, well, uh, we, we, could, we could spend all evening talking about robotics in leisure and entertainment. I mentioned already engineering maintenance. The important thing about these, this new generation of humanoid robots is that they'll share human workspaces. Unlike the uh, robot arms, the multi-axis manipulator that makes cars and washing machines, where humans are kept away. It's a dangerous place for human beings to be. The big change is that, human, uh, is that humanoid robots will share human workspaces. And of course, that's, that's a real um, challenge to roboticists because human workspaces, of course, are, um, uh, are um, chaotic and unpredictable. Uh, and making a robot that is safe in a human workspace is a huge challenge. Yeah. Is, is, is that, is 
Yeah, I think, I mean, that's a very good question. Um, in fact, uh, uh, one of my, um, uh, uh, well, a, a PhD student of mine uh, from several years ago is now on the IEEE uh, committee, standards committee, that's looking at uh, writing uh, safety standards for intelligent robots. Right now, there aren't any, but there clearly need to be standards. The interesting thing is that at the moment, the, um, the way that robots uh, are certified is that they're, they're basically, currently, we, we use the, the same system that we use for drugs. Uh, so, for instance, the, um, the Da Vinci robot, which I'm sure you, you probably have some in, in the Queen's Medical Center, uh, which is a, a very successful robot uh, for surgery or for, for assisting a surgeon uh, robotically. At the moment, the only way of certifying that robot is to put it through um, effectively the same process as you would a new drug. Um, and one of the, um, one of the, uh, the downsides of that process is that it, it, it's, a, a, it's a very long process, which is perhaps a good thing, uh, but the downside is that the robot has to be recertified for every different procedure. So it, it's certified for, um, uh, for um, what is it, um, uh, what's the very common operation that, uh, uh, I'm sorry? Um, no, I'm thinking of, um, uh, I've forgotten what it's called. The, uh, yeah, but something like an appendix. Uh, the problem is if, if, you, if you certify the, the Da Vinci robot to do that, um, that particular surgery, uh, you cannot use it to do a different surgery, even though it may be you know, medically almost identical because of the problem of, of, of certification. Um, yeah, okay, let's, let's, let's move to the, um, the swarm stuff. Um, and this, as I say, really kind of brings it together. Now, um, swarm intelligence, let me just introduce swarm intelligence uh, briefly. Um, swarm intelligence is the kind of intelligence that social uh, animals display, particularly social insects. Um, there's a flock of starlings. Now, what's interesting about that flock of starlings there, and there could be quite literally uh, tens of thousands of birds in that flock, is that they don't crash into each other. But there's no air traffic control. So nobody's telling, you know, starling number 375, uh, turn left five degrees. Um, these, these birds, in the same way that, that a, 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 a swarm of, of insects, uh, wasps or bees, um, the same way that a shoal of fish uh, will not uh, sort of crash into each other, the individuals will not crash into each other, um, they all dis display what we call swarm intelligence. And essentially, this is... Um, a kind of intelligence where um, each individual acts entirely on its own. So it uses local sensing uh, and local intelligence to decide what to do next without communicating with the whole of the rest of the swarm. It only communicates with its nearest neighbors. So the important thing about swarm intelligence is that there's no centralized control. That, that swarm that flock, rather, doesn't have an air traffic control system. In fact, it doesn't have a leader. So 
an ant colony does not have a brain ant that tells all of the other ants what to do. Now, isn't that remarkable? How, how, how then do, um, how does a, a colony of termites build a termite's nest? Or a, or a, a bee colony build a hive without a leader, without a, a kind of a, a hierarchical structure with a, with a, a you know, lieutenants and, and commanders and generals and so on. Well, we're beginning to figure this out. And so really swarm robotics, the, the work that I do, is, is a little bit, you know, it, it's touching back on the biological robotics. We're, we're effectively building um, models of how swarms work with robots. In fact, with the kind of robots that I have here. So these are some of the EPUC robots. Um, unfortunately, they're going to fairly rapidly fall off the edge of the, um, of the table. But, but this is the kind of robot that we use for swarm intelligence. Um, in fact, you, you, you might like to just, if you try not to get, let them fall off, but you can see that the, the robots actually are, um, um, will turn away from your hand. So these are the kinds of robots that we use for swarm intelligence. I'll, I'll stop them now but, uh, and carry on with the talk, but you're very welcome to come and, and have a look at these uh, at the end. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Great. So what kind of projects are we doing in, in swarm robotics? Thank you, David. Thank you. Um, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't actually explain, did I, what was going on in that last little movie. So um, this is the world's first demonstration of flocking in three dimensions with real uh, flying robots. Um, so these are, are kind of little aero, uh, we, we call them aerobots. They're helium blimps. But each robot, um, is deciding where to go on its own, entirely on its own. These are not remotely controlled. They're completely autonomous. Um, very challenging project. Jason, my, my student, Jason Wellsby, uh, had to build all of the electronics, the computer, the batteries, the motors, the sensors, everything um, in a little, actually it's a, it's a little Jaffa cake carton. Um, and, and this whole apparatus had to weigh less than 100 grams because that's the amount of weight that a helium blimp that size will carry. So Jason, in fact, had, had uh, it was quite challenging to do his research because if anybody coughed on the other side of the lab, it would create enough wind to blow the robots off course. Uh, so he typically did all, his, all of his research at night and at weekends. Um, when people were not around. So this was some of the early work uh, in swarm robotics. Let me bring you up to date. Um, and I'm now going to show you a, a project that's really just started, brand new project, um, the European Union project. Um, and this is an attempt to build an artificial organism. Now, the first thing I have to, to, to tell you um, rather important to tell you this. This movie is not real. This is a mock-up. This is a, a, a kind of um, uh, 
um, something that we, we made uh, to allow us to visualize what it is we want to do. So all of these little tiny robots, uh, these are called jasmine robots. The, these were actually made in the University of Stuttgart in Germany. So the idea is that these robots, when they're on their own, these robots are a swarm. They're a swarm of separate robots. And they can do swarm-type things, uh, like flocking, um, for instance. But these are special. They can actually physically join together. And if they join together, and you can imagine them joining together to make a, a kind of cross shape, but where the robots physically join has a motor, which means that they can bend. Um, which means that the, the, star, the cross shape, or the star shape, can then quite literally lift itself off the ground um, and make a kind of, it, it can turn from a two-dimensional structure to a three-dimensional structure and start walking off. Um, so the, the, the biology is interesting here because think of these robots, not as single robots, but cells. Think of, think of them as cells in a multicellular organism. So when they're in a swarm, they're like stem cells. They're undifferentiated. But as soon as they start to come together to form these three-dimensional structures, then some cells um, will become, for instance, foot cells. <coughs> some will become knee cells. Others will become kind of almost like skeletal uh, structural components. So we have a process which is analogous to um, differentiation, cell differentiation. So what we're trying to do here is kind of model the process of, of what we call, um, um, or what developmental biologists call morphogenesis, the process of going from undifferentiated cells uh, to an organism. Um, so we're trying to, what we're trying to do here, and it's a, it's a five-year project, it's, it's we're only a year into this five-year project, uh, is to um, create um, a swarm of robots that can self-assemble, uh, can form uh, three-dimensional uh, artificial organisms, and those organisms can adapt, can evolve and adapt. Evolve using uh, artificial, uh, what we call genetic algorithms, so uh, processes similar uh, modeled on uh, Darwinian evolution, very simple version of, of Darwinian evolution. But even this, this structure might even have an immune system. Um, and one of the partners um, in the project, University of York, in fact, um, are experts in uh, artificial immune systems. Um, let me play the rest of the, the, the movie. Um, the idea of, of this is that if the swarm of robots has to, for instance, cross a barrier that's too big for a single robot to get over, then they form the, into this three-dimensional organism. And you can see there's a kind of spider-like organism uh, that can climb over the, the barrier. And um, a snake-like organism that can also climb over the barrier. And they have different kinds of movement. The, the, the spider-like organism walks like a spider, whereas the snake thing, of course, walks a bit like a caterpillar, I suppose. Now, here we're showing that, that the vision of this 
uh, is that these robots can communicate with other kinds of robots um, that might be uh, telling these robots to go and search um, a place. Again, uh, this kind of search and rescue type of scenario. Um, imagine, this is part of the vision of this project. Imagine again this collapsed building that we, uh, I asked you to, to imagine earlier. Um, wouldn't it be great if, if the rescue workers could turn up with um, a van with perhaps a couple of hundred robots, release the robots into the, into the spaces in the collapsed building. The robots might initially form little, little structures, maybe four or five robots joined together to form little robots that can crawl in around in those spaces. Um, they will map the spaces. And of course, with, by radio, the, the rescue workers can have uh, a computer that shows the map of the spaces appearing on the screen as the robots explore. When the robots find a survivor, hopefully they find a survivor, they could join together in different structures. So for instance, some robots could join together to make a bigger organism to lift rubble or obstacles off the survivor. Other robots might form a kind of medicine bot to actually give first aid to the survivor. Other robots might form a kind of chain, robot chain back to the outside world uh, to provide, um, well, uh, water, communications, uh, and medicine. So the idea is that these robots can kind of morph, they're, they're, they're a bit like transformers, uh, between different shapes um, in order to solve tasks. Now this is obviously a very difficult project. Um, but again, um, it's interesting, uh, I hope it's interesting, because it's a collaboration between biology and robotics. And of the 10 European partners uh, across um, uh, a number of countries, about five or six countries are involved, uh, half of the partners are um, biologists. The other half are roboticists. Um, I'm just going to show you one more project uh, which is a very different, uh, very different project in, um, in swarm robotics. I can see that I'm, my, my hour is now up. Uh, but this is almost, in fact, it is the last thing I'm going to show you. Um, here, uh, we're building what we call the artificial culture lab. So the robots that I, I showed you, the, the, the two epochs that there, in fact, we have a quite a large swarm of these, and this is the, the arena uh, in our lab. Um, and what we're, what we're interested in here is, this is, as it, is uh, as, it, as it stands, this is a kind of simple uh, swarm colony, if you like, of robots. But if we introduce um, robot, robot imitation or social learning, then is it possible that we might see the emergence of, of a very simple kind of proto-cultural behaviors? In other words, the emergence of traditions. Is it possible that, that different groups of these robots might um, evolve, not, not in the genetic sense, or possibly in the genetic sense, um, but more likely in the memetic sense of, of, uh, of, of this word that, this is the word uh, meme, uh, where is it? Um, in fact, I haven't used it, have I? I haven't used the word meme. But um, um, Richard Dawkins coined the, the term meme 
as a unit of cultural transmission. So if, uh, if I um, uh, watch someone making chicken soup and uh, learn the recipe by watching them and then make chicken soup myself, that recipe's a meme. It's been passed from one person to another. So is it possible that um, one group of these robots might, um, when they bump into each other, uh, might do a different kind of movement to another group of robots when they bump into each other. In other words, the emergence of traditions, behavioral traditions. Um, in fact, this is the, the uh, I'm, I'm just going to show you a little movie um, showing, this is me, actually. Uh, I really want to show you the robots. Think of the robots as a kind of microscope for looking at cultural evolution. How come there's just one species on the planet that has full rich culture? Now what these robots there's are six doing universities in blocking project. Robots will do strange and unexpected things. You know, for instance, uh, if a robot has a wobbly wheel, if another robot copies it, you get the bizarre kind of situation where robots that do not have faulty wheels behave as if they do. Oh dear, my wheel has jam. I don't know about this. We mustn't assume that this is all going to be pleasant and orderly and that the robots will somehow behave in a way that we think somehow is nice. Just start with imitation and the whole thing flows from that. Gosh. What I'm trying to do is program them so they can change themselves. Telling a robot to do something, but not precisely what to do. actual behavior is all that matters. That is actually a testable, refutable hypothesis. How do we know what we don't know? I go to these extremes because I like extremes. We have no idea what robot culture might be like. This is another um, <coughs> really very multidisciplinary project. In fact, that group of people you saw there includes a philosopher, um, a theoretical biologist, uh, an art historian and cultural theorist, a uh, computer scientist, um, a sociologist, and me, a roboticist. So that really brings me to the end of this talk. Um, just to sum up, um, yes, yeah, swarm robotics. Really, swarm robotics is uh, any application that needs lots of robots, instead of one robot, but robots distributed uh, in space, uh, if you have stuff in the environment and you need to explore it, map it, uh, monitor it, survey it, rescue it, harvest it, mine it, clean it up, recycle it, all of those, build it, materials if you want to do construction, all of those are potential applications for swarm robotics. The one that, one that I'm particularly interested in, I'm, in fact I'm trying to build a, 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 a writer grant application right now is, is this one here. Uh, I think there's enormous potential for um, swarms of robots that do waste recycling, particularly if they can uh, get energy from the waste that they're recycling. So I'd like to merge the uh, microbial fuel cell technology with swarm robotics. That really brings me to the end of this uh, lecture. Um, just to, to stress what I said at the beginning, uh, I mean, there's no doubt that intelligent robotics are on the way. 
Um, uh, but you know, what kind of robots would you like in your future Christmas stocking? Actually, I realized when I typed this that I realized afterwards that, that nobody has Christmas stockings anymore, do they? Um, <laughs> do, oh, good. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Well, it's been a pleasure um, uh, uh, speaking with you, and I hope that there'll be some questions and answers, but, uh, but I'll stop at this point. Thank you. tradition of speaking so that we can record our questions for right. our podcasts. Terrific. Uh, and yeah. so well, I'm sure that you've invited questions, and I'm, I'm sure that people here would like to uh, make comments. I'm going to suggest we do something, because a lot of young people and older people, and I'm going to suggest you do a buzz group, and that's for just 10 seconds. You speak to the person next door and tell, discuss with them what robot you'd like to have in your life in the next 10 years. Just do that for 10 or 15 seconds. Just discuss with the person next door to you. I'll just put the light up. So. No, it's, a, it's terrific. Good idea. Yeah, great. So you've done that. Um, there are about uh, 60 of you in the room, and if you all spoke for 15, min 15 seconds, that means 60 times 15 seconds. Uh, that's about uh, 20 minutes of discussion. Minutes. 15 minutes of discussion. So that's very, very good <laughs> use of your time. So who's got some questions? What, what robot do you think you're going to have? And, and you're going to see if you can answer if that robot's going to be there. One of the challenges of our society in the next 30 years is the demographic trend and the aging population, and we're just not going to have enough young people to look after them. So do you think we might move to a robotic society of carers, individualized for the particular needs of older people? Do you think that's possible? I think it's technically possible, yes. Um, the question is whether it's culturally desirable. Uh, so I think it's more of a, a cultural problem or societal problem than it is a technical problem. It's certainly true, and I've, you know, I've been a number of times to Japan uh, and, in, in fact, to East Asia, uh, a number of countries in East Asia, and uh, there's no doubt that there is a, a much greater cultural willingness um, uh, in those societies, particularly in, in South Korea and Japan, uh, to accept robots in these kinds of roles. I'm really not sure that the same applies in, uh, in Western Europe. Um, so I, I think the answer is yes, technically possible, but, but in my mind there are big questions about whether it's uh, um, socially or culturally acceptable. I mean, one of my colleagues, um, Noel Sharkey, who uh, he, he and I uh, do quite a lot of work together in public engagement, he believes that one of the dangers of, of robots looking after elderly people is that the rest of society thinks that they're, they're taken care of and forgotten. And I think that is a, a, you know, a, a possibility.
uh, biomachinery. Um, namely the fact that in reality, if you work with the elderly at all, you realize that the actual carers, a very high proportion of them are defective, mm. the human carers. Mm. This it ranges from cruelty, which is endemic in nursing yeah. homes, especially in night shifts, and in hospitals too, I regret to say, mm. to just people who actually can't function optimally in a caring setting. Mm. Now, if you have a mixture of uh, people and uh, machines, mm. uh, then the machines can easily be, I'm sure, be programmed to keep an eye on the standards of care of the people. Mm. This could be quite helpful. Mm. I think that's a, a very good point. And, and one of the... Um, in fact, I, w I was on a panel just a few weeks ago, um, an EPSRC panel uh, uh, called the, the, the Societal Impact Panel. And they'd invited myself and, and um, Noel Sharkey, another roboticist, to speak specifically about the ethical issues. And one of the challenges, I think, that we have in, in, as roboticists is building an ethical robot. In other words, building a robot that can be behave ethically. Now, you know, you, one reads a lot in the press about Asimov's, you know, three laws of robotics and so on. Um, and although, of course, that's a fictional device, uh, which is a, makes a good story, but nevertheless, there is an interesting uh, factor, and, and at this point, I'll mention military robotics. Um, I'm very worried about military robots. I'm particularly worried about robots with guns. Um, the problem with robots with guns is that the, the level of intelligence of robots right now, well, I think the smartest robots that we have are about as intelligent as a lobster. Not very intelligent. And less, less edible. <laughs> less and considerably less edible. Now, you know, would you trust a lobster with, with a machine gun? Of course not. Um, but nevertheless, uh, the U.S military are spending a fortune, quite literally a fortune, on um, uh, weaponized, what they call weaponized robots. And um, a, a very well-respected uh, roboticist, a gentleman called Ron Arkin at Georgia Tech in the US, um, is working on, on what he calls uh, a, a, an artificial conscience. Now, uh, his, it's worth looking at what he's trying to do, and you, you can certainly look him up on, on Google. He's, he's just written a book on this subject. Um, and he believes that you know, when robots are much smarter than lobsters, when, when we can make robots that, that, that are um, not perhaps human level of intelligence, but, but certainly approaching it, he thinks that it's possible to make a robot, in theory, that is more ethically reliable than a human being, in, in the sense that, that, that you know, human soldiers make mistakes, of course, you know, in the heat of, heat of battle. Um, he thinks that it, it's, in theory, possible to encode, somehow, the rules of war, the ethical you know, laws of combat, into a robot in such a way that that robot is more reliable at, you know, at behaving, as it were, uh, according to the rules of war, than um, a human soldier. I think that's a, um, a very, well, it's, it's deeply controversial. But it's, you know, I, I thought I'd share that because 
because it does make the point that that robots, you know, caring for the elderly, um, need to to have built into them, um, uh, you know, ethical behaviours, um, not only for themselves, but as you say, uh, they might well, in fact, keep an eye on each other and possibly other humans as well. Although that again raises deeply interesting questions. Thank you very much, Alan. We're medics here, so I've got a medical question. Sure, we have right. several medics here, including our own professor that runs the skills lab, who was taking lots of notes, so I was thinking, ah, oh, this is interesting. Um, he, he's an anaesthetist. Mm -hmm. In a few years' time, do you think we're going to have an android robot head that, called Bryn that he can put in his seat and go off and have a cup of coffee You know, during the anaesthetic? That's a kind of tough question because I, well, I, I mean, I, um, I, I suppose really what you're saying is, is will robots ever um, be able to uh, take on um, extraordinarily highly skilled human tasks? You know, skills that, that involve um, uh, not only a very high level of technical skill, but, but also judgment. I mean, that, that's essentially what we're talking about, isn't it? A combination of of technical skill and judgment. Um, well, I think the answer is yes, but not for a very long time. Um, I mean, I'm often asked the question, you know, could robots ever have a human level of intelligence? And I think the answer is yes in principle, um, but, but it's a very, very difficult. Uh, you know, going from a lobster, you know, something as smart as a lobster to something as smart as a human. Um, uh, I mean, it, how long have lobsters been around? I, I don't know, perhaps, well, it's certainly hundreds of millions of years. Um, you know, how long did it take to make us? Well, three and a half billion years. So roboticists are not going to be able to, to do that, you know, in five years or ten years. Uh, th there's a lot of rubbish written in the press about um, human level of robot intelligence being just around the corner in you know, ten or fifteen or twenty years because processing power is increasing. You, you may well have heard of something called, called Moore's Law, which is the law that was, um, uh, well, it's a, it's a heuristic that was developed by um, Intel founder Gordon Moore and it's basically the law that says that every two years, or every, yeah, I think it's every two years, your computer, the one in your laptop, um, doubles in power. It's twice as powerful as it was two years ago and, and two years before that and so on. And people have suggested that robots will have human, human intelligence because of that. Well, they're wrong. They're absolutely wrong. Do not believe them if you read that in the press. Why are they wrong? Well, Building human intelligence doesn't just rely on having the raw material. So having fast computers is like having a lot of Italian marble. You can have an enormous amount of the finest Italian marble. doesn't mean you can make a cathedral. 
To make a cathedral, you need to have the design, the architecture. Well, we don't have the design. We don't have the architecture for the human brain. Um, there are some big projects going on right now. There's one in Switzerland called the, the Blue Brain Project. So a guy called Henry Markham, Markram is trying to make uh, an artificial brain with simulated neurons in a vast computer. It's one of the fastest computers on the planet. Um, but the problem is, and, he, and I, I mean, I was at a meeting in Prague back in April, and there were f about 400 scientists and engineers in the audience, and most of us were shaking our heads while he was speaking. Because what he's doing is he's kind of building a soup of randomly connected artificial neurons. Well, that's not going to work, is it? If you randomly connect 10 billion neurons with, I don't know, 10 trillion connections, do you get the human brain? Well, you do in the one-year-old. Exactly, yes. So developing I'm not sure I'd even agree with you for well, a one-year-old. The, yeah. the numbers are right. Oh, the numbers are right, but I think there's, there's, there's a fair bit of development's gone on even before one. Or six yeah. months, six months yeah. in, so yeah. that's what an infant brain is. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Or three infants, yeah. three to yeah. two. So how it evolves from that mm. is crucial. They haven't thought about that, though. Alan here is chairman of the ethics committee. Well, funny you should say that, David. But um, no, I, I think um, listening to you talk um, and emphasizing the ethical aspect, and I think it's a brilliant perspective, it reminded me very much about almost like parallels with genetics, because, of course, um, people are very suspicious of things that can change lives, like a simple genetics test can change the whole family script, can, can change the whole dynamics. And I suppose robots suffer from the, uh, the, military, the militarist robot uh, phenomenon, if you like. You turn on any, any television channels and there's lots of robots with, with powerful weapons killing thousands of people. So I think it's, it's partly an acceptance, isn't it? Ethics is a set of rules that are, that, that uh, are acceptable to society. And mm. if people see that there is good coming from it and no harm, uh, and it's helping um, equal distribute, and it's equally distributed rather than just toys for the rich, then I think they obviously have a, a kind of place in an evolving society. And the what was said earlier on about possibly not replacing people, but assisting people in the care mm. of elderly people or assisting in operations. Mm. And I think, uh, in a way, that's their the big suspicion we have. And I think, obviously, your multi-professional team is addressing some of those impacts. So I've, I very much welcomed the kind of ethical perspective you put on it. Mm. It's a comment, rather than... Mm. No, thank you. Uh, no, that's, that's a, a very good comment.